0: Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Among the many shifts and themes of
1: health IT in the past year, one of the more striking is the emergence of telehealth as a way of accessing healthcare. In January of 2020, less than one-tenth of one percent of Medicare primary visits were telehealth. But in the midst of the pandemic, telehealth usage shot up to nearly 50 percent of all visits but is this a permanent new access to healthcare that will make significant impacts to rural health and other communities with little access? Or will it go the way of the elbow bump and Santa's in bubbles and decrease to minimal use after we finally get rid of this pandemic? For these questions and many more, we have an excellent guest on our show today, Roy Schoenberg, president and CEO of Amwell and a leading thought leader in telemedicine technology. Hello. And welcome to another episode of the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z E L I S. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for Weedy. That's W-E-D-I. Weedy is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. And in our virtual studio, we've also got the producer of this podcast, Michael McNutt, Director of Education and Events for Weedy. Michael, how's your 2021 shaping up to be?
0: So far, so good, question mark? Um... (laughs) <laughs> seven seven days in, and I'm not exactly sure, but I'm hanging in there.
1: Okay, good, good. It's early yet. It's early yet. Uh, all right, sounds good. And as I mentioned, we are honored to speak to Roy Schoenberg in our studio today. Who I think uh, I think we should just refer to as Mr. I'm sorry, Doctor Telemedicine. Roy is president and CEO of Amwell, a leading company in telemedicine technology. Roy was also just recently named one of the top 100 most influential people in health IT. He is also an active board member on the American Telemedicine Board. So, so again, I think we just have Dr. Telemedicine. Roy, with what has happened in telemedicine the past year, we are very excited to talk with you today.
2: I'm, I'm very excited to be here, thank you. Great to be with you, Matthew and Michael.
1: Terrific. So, uh, Roy, on the show, it's always interesting to hear the, the background stories of healthcare leaders, how they ended up in healthcare or health IT. Uh, and so often, we find that people take lessons from other areas or from their past that they can apply to healthcare. And I, I know you've got a, a lot going on in your life, uh, scuba diving, you've got uh, a long history of a doctor, being a doctor in the Israeli army, you got recent fatherhood, as I understand. So, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about your past and and what kind of brought you to where you are today
2: so you know with all the with all the, the the fancy list of activities that you 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 say that I do we all sit in the back of our of our you know attic or basement these days and that's how we we conduct ourselves and try to find joy in that and as you said I'm very lucky to be a uh, a, a new dad, which fills you know fills our lives in in so many wonderful things. but uh, it, it has been definitely a very interesting kind of year. In terms of you know things that kind of got me here, um, you know, obviously so many turns and corners in life that you can imagine. But I would say that uh, if specifically we're talking about animal and telehealth, you know one thing that comes to mind, is that uh, about 15 years ago? So this is really, a, you know, more than a generation back. Uh, just before starting Amwell, um, I, I literally remember sitting on the beach in Israel, um, and I was very, I was much younger then, um, and I was single. And uh, as as most single people did then, you use uh, dating sites. That's how you, you know, you you find people. And it just occurred to me right there on the beach that the, the function of dating, dating sites can actually be very valuable in healthcare. Because if you think about what a dating site does is it literally uh, kind of uh, identifies people who want to get together, who are willing and able uh, to be in front of each other, but otherwise couldn't find each other, and brokers the introduction between them and then lets them you know go about their business, so to speak. And the truth is, and it just occurred to myself and my brother, uh, that if we could create that kind of brokerage in healthcare, where at any point in time, there are physicians who are willing and able to get in front of a patient who are not currently occupied. And at the very same time, there are patients who could really benefit from getting in front of them. So if we could only create a similar brokering capability in healthcare, maybe we'll be on to something. And that's literally how Amwell started. I'll be the first one to say that, uh, you know, like any passionate, you know, uh, um, people who begin, who start a company, you never, you know, you over underestimate, you always underestimate what's going to be in front of you. Obviously, healthcare is a little bit trickier than, than creating dating site. But at the end of the day, that's what telehealth really is, right? It brokers the availability of clinicians on one side of the world. To patients on the other side, who who need to get in front of one another, so there's a direct line between telehealth and that day at the beach.
1: That that is a terrific story, Roy. I I think that that is definitely in our top three of the best origin stories. And and I'll have to I guess I'll have to use more dating sites and be inspired for business idea. That is a great story. Good. Um, So, Roy, in the past year, uh, uh, we've seen telehealth. As we talked about, usage has skyrocketed uh, during this pandemic. Maybe you can yep. start by telling us a bit more about um, what Amwell and your clients experienced uh, over this past year.
2: Uh,
1: well, you know, you, you you said it right that,
2: you know, sometime in March of 2020, uh, all hell broke loose in in mm-hmm. literally every way. Where every one of the customers, every one of the clients and the, the organizations that we served, um, started kind of re reimagining the way they do business using telehealth. Um, and we saw a couple of interesting waves um, that were very different from one another. Um, just as a background, not that that is too important, but Amwell, you know, we have two major business lines. We have one that serves the pair community, the health plan community, uh, where we run telehealth under a lot of different brands for the likes of United and Anthem and you know, Cigna and Blue Cross Blue Shields of a lot of different states. Each one is a different name, but it's still run Amwell inside. And those services are available to, you know, to members of those health plans. The other, um, the other part of our operation is actually serving, serving the delivery side of healthcare, where we work with a lot of large health systems, delivery networks and hospitals, allowing their clinicians to utilize telehealth with their own patients. Both of these have risen very, very dramatically during during those months. As you can imagine, everything was shut down. Hospitals were were not doing anything that was not urgent, uh, and were trying to kind of uh, focus on on COVID. Um, physician offices were closed. PCP offices were closed. Urgent care centers were closed. Retail clinics were closed. Nobody wanted to be in any kind of a healthcare facility because that's where you're going to catch COVID. Or that was the notion at the time. So everybody was at a standstill, and we saw both the pairs as well as the health systems trying to, you know, trying to do anything that they could do through, through telehealth. But the waves that we saw, the two waves that we saw were very different. Um, it's March and April and May. We saw in a skyrocketing volume of Americans who were in their homes um, who literally had no other place to go, um, and utilized telehealth in order to, to get to the physicians that they need, uh, because there was no other option. That wave, which was very, very significant, I mean, at, I think the, the, at some point it was 40 times the volume that we saw otherwise, 40-fold, it's an incredible number. That wave lasted, you know, through, through the summer and started kind of waning off a little bit when when alternatives opened up when or you know urgent care centers and, and PCP offices started resuming operation and people had you know physical alternatives and it, it never came back to its base but it it definitely you know the peak was over and people people started getting healthcare elsewhere the other wave actually was a lagger kind of started showing a little bit later on and that one was driven by the health systems who couldn't actually, you know, survive financially because they didn't have patient encounters, which is a big way in which they get paid. They submit claims for that and that's how they they survive. They couldn't they couldn't handle that, they didn't have the patient volume and the patient encounters that they needed. So because of financial reasons, they uh, they started shifting a lot of what they needed to do to telehealth. And the difference is that 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 wave was driven by adoption not of patients, but rather of clinicians, of providers and their institutions. And interestingly enough, that wave, even though it started a little later, um, is actually still going up as as we speak right now. And I think the reason for this, and I'll I'll stop right there, but I think the reason for this is because the application of telehealth um, has diversified over the last year.
1: Uh, but the volumes are still uh, incredible, any way you look at it. So that's interesting. And, and since we're on usage, then what does that say uh, for the future going forward? And and maybe um, I'm thinking the next year, but then five years from now, is is are are clinicians going to feel like less need to use it because they don't need to push on it, just like consumers might not need to, you know, do pick up uh, to pick up their lunch every every day now. So how do you I, see usage going forward
2: yeah actually you know i think that the the reality is going to be that the tele the, the telehealth use for convenience for urgent care um is going to be somewhat normalized i think it's still going to be significantly higher than we saw before because a lot of a lot of people for one reason or another used telehealth or were exposed to telehealth during during uh, uh, the year of covid during 2020 And we know, and we knew this long before 2020, that once people use it, they are very likely to use it again and again. I mean, they kind of get liberated. You know, it it doesn't scare them anymore, and they see the convenience in it, and then they use it again. So I think you you will see a lot more urgent care and behavioral health and all of those kind of patient-initiated telehealth going on. But the, the volume of telehealth that we're going to see forward is actually going to be Driven by the reimagination of how longitudinal healthcare, the management of patients that don't have a, a flu or a rash or whatever it is, but rather have heart failure and diabetes and cancer and, and, and a variety of chronic conditions, those, those folks that need healthcare very regularly, what we're going to find is that they and their clinicians are going to uh, create essentially a, a different kind of interlacing between physical services and digital services, and they're going to become the way medicine is being practiced. Um, I know that this sounds, you know, maybe a little bit kind of jumping ahead, but I think that when you, when you think about the way that you treat, for example, a cancer patient, which unfortunately is, you know, major, major, you know, prevalence, uh, you know, in, in any country, the the challenge of managing and and supporting a cancer patient is is multidisciplinary. It is not only the you know the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy. It, it's it's behavioral health, it's nutrition, it's pain management, it's a variety of other disciplines. And the the vast majority of time that a cancer patient you know uh, is fighting their condition is at home, is not in the hospital. Um, we now have the ability to reimagine how we surround those patients with all of these knowledge, all of these disciplines, in order to give them a better chance of fighting that condition if we can really be next to them where they spend most of their time. So this is just an example of how the incorporation of telehealth into the standards of practice of medicine can change fairly dramatically survival rates. And this is the part that I think we, you know, some of our... You know, the crazy aficionados of telehealth, the present company included, were talking about a couple of years ago, and everybody thought we were crazy. The reality that we are, we're, you know, we're watching right now is that that has become a very, very important part of the conversation of how both health systems and payers and, and, you know, uh, uh, federal programs are looking at telehealth. This isn't anymore the video dialer. It's a way to reimagine how we surround
1: patients. That, that's interesting because it, it ties in, of course, to to other things we've talked on the show. The idea of value based healthcare, right? Quality based healthcare, where where the where the providers are going to start to get paid based on how healthy their patients are, and not just that they fix something that was broken. Uh, that's what it sounds yeah. like. headed to towards, right?
2: Yeah, I think. Look, first of all, the the. Uh, value based payment opens up the door for clinicians to be entrepreneurs right they they have the they have the right to really try and think about what is the best way for them to manage that patient so that that patient gets better so that you know of course they're going to they're going to be reimbursed or or paid uh, for helping in the well-being of that patient. That means that it opens the door for them to utilize technology. It means that they can use not only synchronous telehealth, you know, of interacting with a patient through technology, but a whole world of tools and sensors and RPM and, and others that can help them understand when that patient does require care and appropriate what kind of care the patient gets at any point in time. So there's no question that the transition to value-based care is going to have a, you know, is going to add fuel
1: to the fire to the incorporation of these technologies. Yes, very good. I want to switch for a bit and um, go back to some of the statistics. And Another statistics we saw in the usage of telemedicine was that uh, it, it expanded considerably in the urban areas, really areas that already had substantial access to, to health care. Uh, and like you said, there are reasons for that because um, people couldn't leave their homes, their hospitals weren't doing elective uh, surgery, they couldn't even go to primary care. Uh, but we saw less of an expanse, uh, certainly uh, an expansion in usage, but less so in the rural area. And and like you say, some of the profits of telemedicine say this is something that will help Areas and communities, not just rural, but any area that has problems with um, healthcare access. Um, do you have any uh, viewpoint on on what happened over the last year with that, and maybe what obstacles uh, are in front of us in order to better utilize telemedicine and these kind of tools to 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 increase access to healthcare? You know, I think the uh,
2: you know, I. I, I I can talk for an hour just about this topic. I think that the <laughs> observation the observation that you mentioned is fascinating. You know, I don't think that I know the answer to that, but there may be something to the fact that in rural areas, healthcare tends to be significantly more personal. In large metropolitan areas, you have so many choices that if you throw yet another choice like digital access to healthcare, people are more willing to take advantage of it because, you know, relationships are a little bit more cynical in large metropolitan areas than they are in in rural communities, where the, you know, the local healthcare provider—whether it's a person that you know or have a relationship with, or whether it's a facility, you know, that you're familiar and going to regularly—these um, relationships tend to be stronger than in in, uh, in in large metropolitan areas, where also the population tends to be more mobile, so they develop less relationship with local physical facilities, and they're willing to embrace technology more. Um, but um, and I, I don't know that that is the answer. And you know, one thing that that we we all know is that the the notion of access has dramatic implication on uh, on outcomes. The one thing that I would say, which I think is, you know, I, I'm not telling anybody anything new. That of course, if you can deliver healthcare through technology and the internet reaches further than than physical healthcare facilities, you are improving access. But I think the part that is really getting interesting is that our understanding of changing availability of healthcare is now taking yet another step forward beyond that. And what I mean by that is really taking a step back and looking at telehealth technologies, not only as a way for people to tap into a clinician to get a ZPAC, but rather as an infrastructure for the redistribution of healthcare altogether. And what I mean by that is you know, if you think about, and I know people are tired of analogies, but if you think about what Amazon has done, it, uh, it you know it started as a bookstore, obviously, but what it really did—the the, the magic of Amazon um, was its ability to reimagine how inventory of goods can travel from one place to the other without having to be stored in the Amazon warehouse, which allowed it to be. People call it the store of everything, or whatever you want to call it, and 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 that really opened up the whole notion of online retail, which of course changed the world in in a lot of different ways, some good, some bad. There is a you know there is a point in making the same analogy to what telehealth is going to do for healthcare, because if we can imagine, for example, knowledge, I'm not talking about availability of a primary or urgent care physician. But rather knowledge of healthcare traveling through this technology, not even necessarily to the hands of patients, but rather to the hand between clinicians, such that, for example, um, you know, uh, clinicians from Dana Farber, who is you know a great cancer institute in, in Boston, who are very versed at the very latest things you can do for fairly complex leukemias, uh, you know, and, and and the therapy for them, if they can be made available to consult. A, a local clinician in North Dakota who's taking care of a patient with that diagnosis, we are going to dramatically change the quality of care that's available in North Dakota, even though the patient is still having access to the same physical health care that's, that's available in North Dakota. I'm not picking on North Dakota for any reason, I'm trying to make an example though. So there are opportunities for us. And, and maybe just another one example, which I think is critical and became a reality during COVID, where, you know, we learned that there were areas around the country that were incredibly overwhelmed with COVID and healthcare facilities that had suddenly, you know, so many patients that needed, you know, to be on a, on a, on a, on a ventilator, on a respirator. And it takes, you know, a certain skill to know how to, to manage a patient that is intubated and telehealth allowed clinicians from other side of the country from the other side of the country that were versed in how to manage those patients to essentially be uh, load balanced to be redistributed through this technology to help the local clinicians on the other side of the country that was overwhelmed on caring for that patient and that is not something that was done you know that is going to continue on a regular basis but the notion that we can use this technology to pull together, to take resources of healthcare, whether they're actual appointments or whether they're the knowledge or consultancy or care coordination, and make them available across the country, no matter where the patient shows up, that's a whole other view of changing access. Um, It's a little bit more like, you know, along the line of FEMA or other kind of federal infrastructures that allow you to you know, move help from one side of the country to the other, it actually falls in line with that, you know, uh, with that structure, uh, just the same. So I think access is going to change uh, because of telehealth, but in ways that are much, much deeper than just the availability to allow someone to get quickly in front of a clinician.
1: I think that's an excellent insight, uh, Roy. It's something we, so so that doesn't come into the conversation of telehealth very often, but... The idea of providers having access to other providers and their knowledge. Terrific. Thank you. And when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Roy Schoenberg, president and CEO of Amwell. I'm going to ask him if he's got any advice for healthcare organizations that may not have a well-built out virtual care strategy yet. For now, let's take a quick break and hear from our producer, Michael McNutt.
0: Widi invites all healthcare IT professionals to register for our first major educational offering of 2021, The Quest for Health Equity, February 23rd and 24th on Zoom. Thought leaders in the fields of health IT and public health convene for a two-day forum addressing the value and importance of data interoperability in eliminating health disparities in the country. For our keynote presentations, we're excited to welcome two of the nation's most influential healthcare leaders and health equity advocates Dr. Georges Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association, and George Halverson, Chair and CEO of the Institute for Intergroup Understanding. This meaningful and valuable event features speakers from CMS, Siren, The Gravity Project, Harvard Medical School, AHA, and more. Review our full agenda and register at weedy.org. Enter the code PODCAST to receive 20% off your registration fee. Sign up today for the Quest for Health Equity, February 23rd and 24th.
1: We're back and we're talking with Roy Schoenberg, President and CEO of Amwell, on another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy Podcast. So, Roy, I guess I'll pick up with the question I, I, I teased at the uh, break there. Uh, what Do you have any strategies or advice, maybe advice before you even get to the strategies for uh, healthcare organizations that don't have a strategy in hand yet for virtual care?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, again, this is one of those things which, again, you know, you can spend an entire dinner of a bottle of wine of all the things you need to think about when you put telehealth or these kind of technologies on your whiteboard as a as a CEO or or a strategy maker for organizations, but you know, if I had to pick one, which I, I, I think could potentially be helpful, is that you should assume that telehealth does more than you think it does. Um, and what I mean by that is that I think you know the evolution of this of, of these technologies and, and the business around them and the embrace of them by both by patients and providers and payers and government and so on has created a situation where a lot of people still think of telehealth as a as an urgent care product. Um, and then there is kind of a next tier of people who are saying, well, it can be to do urgent care, but it can also do a scheduled visit with my patient. So if I can you know use a video with my patient at home, maybe that's the extent of telehealth that i can that I can do. And I think the the challenge is that organizations that only think of telehealth in this way, by the time they deploy telehealth, are going to be already fairly behind either uh, their competitive landscape or um, some of the areas that, that telehealth can bring a lot of efficiency into. So to give you a sense, telehealth spends now Um, for example, you know, a whole domain of clinician-to-clinician telehealth, which we briefly talked about at at the national level. But, of course, if you're a health system and you have different campuses and different buildings, your ability to utilize clinicians who are in the other campus in order to get a consultation for neurology rather than having to staff another neurologist in in the other campus has a direct implication on your efficiency. So when you're thinking about telehealth, don't only think about scheduling a visit with your, with, with your patient, but also think about internal use of it. And then it goes deeper and deeper. When you think about uh, the growing world of, of, of uh, the conjunction of telehealth with sensors at home, um, there are now more and more mature products that allow you as a health system to uh, send the patient home with a package of sensors and telehealth that allow you to continue and surveil On those patients during that period where readmissions are likely and of course very very uh, expensive to all involved so that you can really reimagine um, how you can continue to be in the life of that patient and check up on them during that very very sensitive time of course what that means is that you can change the when factor or, or what is the length of stay that you need to keep a patient in the hospital if you know that when you discharge them your your nursing staff can continue to check up on them every 4 hours to make sure that they're okay you would likely let them go home a day or two sooner if that is the case so these are you know these are just examples of areas that telehealth is fast and furious going into if you are in the lucky position where you are developing your telehealth strategy you have the opportunity to really think about how you build telehealth as an operating system for your institution rather than patch by patch by patch. Let's buy something that does urgent care and let's buy something that does a scheduled visit and, and be done with it. Think about it significantly more comprehensively and put together an operating system for digital interaction between all of the constituents in your organization and you'll be better off.
1: I I like this idea, this theme you keep coming back to about reimagining this tool and not just thinking about it as, you know, uh, as 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 the tool that's right in front of us now, but where this tool could go. And and uh, even that idea that we we don't know how 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 where we can go with this. There'll be new ideas. And and like you said, physicians being innovators and entrepreneurs, that's a great concept. It it. um, with that idea, and, and this is a question I've seen you write about as well, um, is there a danger or maybe this isn't a danger at all, maybe this is a benefit, but is there a danger of overutilization uh, where suddenly, you know, instead of paying Netflix, I'm going to, you know, click my uh, my uh, telehealth uh, app and uh, talk to my doctor about an itch I've been having in my elbow? Is there, is there a risk that this is just a, another tool that um, will add to the cost of healthcare, as opposed to keeping it steady or or, or uh, decreasing costs. Yeah, I think you know
2: that was obviously the the first concern, right? Fifteen years ago, when we we started, you know, thinking about telehealth and rolling it out, the the customers of telehealth were mostly the payers, who at the time, at least, had a very simple ask: if we can give patients. Uh, another way of getting in front of a clinician you know, w- when they need it, those patients are less likely to show up in emergency rooms and, and, and it will cost everybody less. So that was kind of the initial drive for for telehealth. And obviously the concern was, but if it's going to be too easy, then people will do exactly what you just described. Luckily, 15 years have gone by. Um, that's Even in healthcare, that's enough in order to collect enough data to understand whether something is true or not. Um, And the numbers speak for themselves. Uh, There have been multiple studies that were done by the large pairs that that we serve, both uh, United Optum as well as Anthem, um, as well as other institutions like Intermountain that have pair function, you know, to the way that they serve their communities. Um, And interestingly enough, all of them came back with an exclamation mark around the cost-saving Uh, that they have seen when telehealth was rolled out. And maybe that's because, you know, it's actually the other way around. Patients are not very liberally using telehealth. It's actually kind of scary to use telehealth and then a physician shows up in front of you and you're one-on-one with them and you better have a good reason why you took their time. Maybe that's something that's entrenched into our DNA, but we have not seen patients abuse telehealth at all. Uh, It's very, very rare that that's the case. Now, there are bad apples. I'll be the first one to say that that does happen. Uh, Just like in online retail, you know, there is, if you do anything at large scale, they're going to be the people that will fake credit cards or forge credit cards or impersonate or do those kind of things or, you know, buy things and return them, you know, for spite. Um, But these are marginal. Uh, At the end of the day, we really have to think about telehealth as another conduit between patients and the healthcare system. And for the most part, the respect that patients have to the healthcare system resonates on telehealth just as it does in physical care.
1: Right. Very good. I'm going to switch again here. And um, uh, I think what may have helped uh, the expansion of telehealth in the last uh, year has been the legislation or maybe uh, the lack of legislation. In, in other words, um, under the last administration, a lot of the regulations were waived or there were exceptions. And at the state levels, governors gave orders and waived telehealth and kind of free telehealth to, uh, to, to expand where it needed to go. Um, if you could um, stand in front of uh, the next administration or the next HHS secretary uh, for the coming year, w- what suggestions would you have about where legislation should be with regard to... Telehealth, either in terms of keeping or going back to some of the the, the the guardrails that were in place last year, or or what they need to 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 in, improve or add or, or uh, continue to take away.
2: Yeah, I think you know. First of all, there's been there's been tremendous progress. You know, things like originating site and allowing the home to be a place of care, with the understanding that a lot of that is going to be through through technology. I think that these changes are, you know, the, the genie coming out of the bottle or the, 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 the toothpaste out of the tube. I don't think that these are going back. We, we do understand, and it is in our interest as a system, to shift healthcare home as much as possible for two reasons. One is it's more cost effective. And two, as people, that's where we want to be. We do not want to be admitted. We do not want to live in a skilled nursing facility. We want to grow old, surrounded by our fortress, which is our home. So I think these are these are here to stay. Um, and by the way, there's a lot of you know uh, downstream regulations that still need to be updated with the concept that the home is a valid point of care. Uh, but I think that's going to happen. That's inevitable. The part if you if you gave me the one sentence in front of the next HHS secretary um, or president, I think this is this is a debt level. This is such a huge part of the GDP that it is in our national interest to do so uh, would be state licensure. Uh, there is no question that the economies of scale that come with the size and, and richness of this country are um, completely nullified by the fact that healthcare services, which as I said, is the, is the biggest part of the GDP, stop at the state line. Just like I- imagine the internet stopping at the state line. It is that antiquated. It is that wrong for us to look at it this way. Um, And, you know, historically, there have been some initiatives, the licensure compact, and that didn't fly for a variety of different reasons. And, you know, there are other initiatives in the nursing side of things, which are a little bit more successful. But this is not going to come bottom up. This is not going to be an initiative of this state medical board or the other state medical board It's definitely not going to be the initiative from the provider of a local area. Um, This has to come through top-down leadership. Someone at that level, at the national level, has to say, we have incredible medicine available all around the country, and if we could allow it to travel, we will do right by Americans. And that has to be the calling card. I would even say a, a political... You know, something—a political slogan that you put on your flag as an elected official at every level—to say the best way for us to modernize and improve the healthcare experience of Americans is to allow technology to take part or part in their healthcare and allow it to flow um, without interruption across the country. That would be—I ended up with one, more than one sentence, but <laughs> that would be the sentence that I would use.
1: No, it's great because it's such, a, it's such a simple concept, right? It's not, a, it's not deep into the legislative uh, uh, minutia, right? It is, let's, let's free the data. We're already talking about going outside the four walls uh, and what we can think about of access uh, of medicine. So why would we not go outside the artificially geographic lines and borders uh, and, and free it? So I think it's a great, it's a great talking point. Uh, breaking away from telehealth uh, for a moment, and just as someone who has been very active in watching uh, the United States healthcare uh, industry over the last couple of decades, um, any broader global thoughts or or any ideas of where you think the healthcare in general is headed, uh, especially after this pandemic's over, what are, what are we going to look like in three or four years?
2: Well, um, well, three three or four years is kind of uh, you're making it harder to predict because we know that healthcare. <laughs> Never fails to make things more complicated. You know, we just build a system, li- built a system like that. But I would say that you know, if there's one thing, um, I don't want to call it the silver lining of COVID, but uh, if there is such, but there's one thing that we have seen over the last year that is actually remarkably encouraging, which is when when our back was against the wall as a healthcare system, and and it it still is. We and we removed some of the some of the barriers to our thinking because there was no other choice. We've heard over and over again at the dark hours of you know of different peaks of this pandemic, you know, let's try it because you know we have nothing else. You know, what else could we do? Which is really kind of being with the back against the wall. Healthcare actually started acting like people who their back is against the wall, where they muster new thinking, new energy, and new uh, initiatives in a way that they would never do unless that was the case. And we have seen the level of, of you know, we, I mentioned this before, reimagination or imagination and rethinking about healthcare and rethinking about where healthcare should take place. And rethinking about how relationships should be maintained with a mix of technology and physical and delegation and other, you know, different instruments. But the amount of innovation and embrace of new ways of doing the business of healthcare that happened in the last nine months, at least in my my observation, has exceeded what we've seen in the previous 20 years. Now, the question is, and there's no question that we're going to be better off with this, there's no question that this will dramatically improve the healthcare experience that we can expect as Americans. The only question that remains is, are we going to use this as a springboard to make this part of the DNA of healthcare, which is notoriously um, conservative, and use this opportunity to allow us to become more, you know, the kind of people that says, but what if we could do this? But what if we can change that? But what if that you know, constant is actually something that is more flexible and more variable? And I, I think we have shown the industry that that can happen. Now the question
1: is, are we gonna make it our new DNA? That, that is a great uh, rallying cry, uh, Roy, I think for, for when, as soon as we get our arms around this pandemic and how healthcare moves forward, uh, terrific. Um, very much appreciate this important discussion uh, before we sign off, uh, Roy, any resources uh, you think listeners should check out uh, to give them more information about telemedicine or anything you've talked about?
2: Well, I think you know uh, you know ATA is a great is a great resource uh, the American telemedicine Association a great resource. Um, there you know the administration is changing, so you know we're gonna see, but I have I have good reason to believe that the incoming administration is going to embrace telehealth in a, in a very very powerful way. So I think a lot of resources are going to be made available through HHS and CMMI and others. Um, but the truth is, you know, it's going to be all around you. You you are going to be less required to go to the end of the world to find information about telehealth because I don't think there's going to be a single healthcare institution that in the coming year is not going to have telehealth resources on their website, on their, in their offices, in the way that they communicate with, with patients, providers, and vendors. So, it's going to be all around you.
1: Great. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. I appreciate the discussion today. It's a pleasure being here with you, Matthew. <laughs> Terrific. We've been talking with Roy Schoenberg, President and CEO of Amwell. One of Weedy's primary functions is to keep health plans and hospitals and other providers educated on health IT. So, we very much appreciate Roy Schoenberg helping Weedy do that today. This has been the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. You can find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.